we're going to have our time of our Bible reading tonight read out for us and Faye is going to read James chapter 2 at verses 14 to 26. Thank you so much Faye for reading it. Um, over to you, thank you. What good is it my brothers and sisters if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, it, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them in a, off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Faith, for reading that out to us. And do keep your Bibles open in front of you as we have, as we look at that and explore that passage together. Well, I'm always amazed when I, I read or hear the story of, of King Solomon and his ruling in the book of Kings. And if we're not familiar with that story, we don't recognise it maybe, then it's the story of this king named Solomon, who was a ruler. He was a king over Israel in the Old Testament. And he received from God wisdom that made him the wisest king pretty much in the ancient world to have ever lived. And one day when Solomon was sitting on his throne and he was presiding over Lord his court and matters were coming for his judgment on, well, in came two women. And both of these women came before Solomon and both claimed that they were the mother of a child that had been born. And that the other woman had stolen their child from them. And of course, there was no way past this. You know, Solomon had no access to a DNA test or, you know, CCTV evidence to look at. There were no other witnesses that saw this. But then Solomon gives his judgment. And to the shock, I'm, to the sort of shock, I'm sure, of everyone who would be in that room, he orders for a sword to be brought out. And since these women can't agree on whose child it is, he orders that the child be cut in two and half be given to one woman and half be given to the other. And yet when Solomon gave that judgment, the, the, the woman who was the mother of this child, she cries up at that point and she she cries out to Solomon. She begs Solomon, please don't do this. In fact, she says, give 
the child to the other woman instead, only on the condition that no harm comes to the child. You see, when Solomon heard that woman's cry, he knew who was the mother. And so he orders that the child be given to her. She was the true mother. She loved her child so much. It's a great account of Solomon's wisdom, isn't it? It tells the story of two people who both claimed that they were the mother. And so the question for Solomon was, well, how do you differentiate between these two claims? How do you tell who is telling the truth? And Solomon knew the answer was, you'd see it by their actions. You'd know it by the way they showed it. Solomon knew that whilst both of these women claimed that they were the mother, only the true mother would show it by their actions. Well, we're in the book of James. And James, as we're going through this letter, well, you know, it's important to know that James, he isn't trying to show us what the gospel is. That is how we can be saved. He's not trying to show us what the good news about Jesus is. Rather, James is writing to show us what the gospel does. That is what it looks like when someone believes this good news of Jesus, what their life will look like. And hopefully that's just a helpful starter as we begin looking at our passage, especially our one tonight. You see, James's question tonight isn't like Solomon and who's the real mother. But almost James asks, who has a real faith? You see that right at the start of our passage, verse 14. James says, claims are being made. In other words, you know, you've got two people sitting next to each other in church. How do you know if someone has a real and a living faith, a, a saving faith that some people use as a term for it? And that's something that we need to know more than ever today, isn't it? You know, what, what makes a Christian? What is it to have a Christian faith? Is being a Christian just an expression of belief in God? Is it writing follower of Jesus on your bio, on your Instagram page? Is it having a, a right theology, a right understanding of God? Is it listening to a worship playlist on your way to work in the morning? Is it being christened as a child? Is it belonging to a family who love Jesus? Is it saying the right things to the right people? What is it? What makes a real and a living faith? Well, James is going to show us this evening. And he says, you'll know someone is a Christian, not just because they told you, but because they showed you. Just like the mother with Solomon. A passage tonight shows us that faith and action, faith and living it out are in one sense inseparable things. You can't have one without the other. It's like smoke and fire or salt and seawater, or, you know, a modern example, and or deck. You can't have one without the other. That's what James is going to show us. Now, I might, there might be lots of questions that we might have had as we heard our passage read out to us this evening. I know there probably will be lots of questions. There are lots of questions that I had. But we'll see tonight something, well, as credited to Martin Luther, the great reformer, what he said he said that whilst we are saved by faith alone, he said the faith that saves is never alone. That's really what we're going to be seeing 
as we go through our passage this evening. So I've got two two sections to our passage tonight to hopefully make it easier to understand and clearer as we work our way through it. And the first section is the faith, in quote marks, the faith that doesn't save, verses 14 to 19. That's the question that we are immediately hit with at the start of our passage. Look with me at verse 14. James says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but no deeds, can such faith save them? James starts off by saying, what good is it if someone knows the whole Bible, believes what the Bible says, and yet it doesn't translate to anything? Can such a faith like that save them? That, that's the question. And James goes on in the rest of this first section to give two examples, two illustrations of what that faith looks like so James says look with me at verse 15 he says well say someone came into the church and someone comes to you with no clothes and no food nothing and then you seeing the need of that person you know you kind of get alongside them you know you put your arm around their shoulder probably not the moment but you put their arm around their shoulder and you kind of say you pat them on the back and you give this kind of saying that James says you know he says go in peace you know, you, you just keep warm. You know, I, I hope you find something to eat. James says, if you respond like that, what good is that? What good is that? Go, go in peace. It's kind of like this, this godly blessing that people would have shared with, with others. It's like turning around to someone today and, you know, someone facing that kind of need and saying, you know, God bless you. You know, I'll be praying for you. you see, all of these examples in our passage, they they touch on what has been and is a major theme in the book of James. This contrast between talking and doing. And James again here starts off by showing us that, well, if all our faith is, is about saying the right things, saying God-centered things even, if it's not accompanied by action, verse 17, if there is no translation into the way that we live our lives, it is dead. There's no life in it. And James goes furthest and he illustrates that more about what this faith that is dead looks like. Look with me at verse 18. And he responds to this comment that either he hears someone say or he kind of imagines someone will say. He says someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. So what this person's trying to say is, is they're almost trying to separate faith and deeds faith and action you know oh it's really nice that you have uh, deeds but but I have faith you know they they treat faith and, and deeds like they're two separate things but James he comes back on that remember James is trying to show us that faith and deeds are are inseparable they're smoke and fire kind of thing and he says well he responds by saying well show me your faith without your deeds and I will show you faith by my deeds. The point, the two are inseparable. You can't separate them. You can't act like one is fine and, and it kind of acts without the other. No, both go together in the Christian life. And James goes one step further again. Verse 19, and he comes to his second illustration, that of the demons in verse 19. He says, you believe that there is one God good 
Even the demons believe that and shudder. It's almost like he says, if you want more proof that this is the case, more proof that faith if it doesn't translate anywhere is enough. Well, the demons in one sense believe. They believe that, that God is one. God is one being a very famous quote in Deuteronomy. It was in the, the Jewish Shema, which would have been said every single day as a, an opener to prayer. They would have said, the Lord our God is one. James says the demons believe that. In fact, demons probably have a more accurate theology than most of us. They know who God is. They know all about who Jesus is, that he's the son of God. They know all about the Trinitarian nature of God. They know all about the substitutory atonement. They know that Jesus is risen from dead. They know, they believe that. It's just they refuse to live under God's authority. They hate what they know. And James, as he writes, I know I've said this already, but he goes one step further still. He kind of builds on this progression. And he says, well, what the demons believe makes them shudder. It's like James says, well, at least they have a reaction to what they know. The demons, they shudder at what they know. Now, do you know, as we reflect on this first section, with these two illustrations, you could say to summarise them, one is a, an armchair philanthropist and the other is the theologian or theological demons. And what's interesting about both of these aspects is, is what these examples address. You see, one is in terms of how we relate to others and the other is more in terms of how we relate to God. And I guess this points us to what James has been hinting at through his letter already. He mentions in chapter two, verse eight, about the royal law. And that takes us back to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 38. And Jesus, he's being quizzed by these experts and religious leaders of the law. And they asked and they come to Jesus and they ask him, well, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus, he responds and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and strength and with all of your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. James knows that right at the heart of someone who has this living faith, someone who loves God and loves others. And those are two things that James shows us in the opposite way, in a negative way in this first section. And so we have to really answer the question that James proposed to us at the start. Can a faith where our attitude towards God hasn't changed and our attitude towards those around us, especially those in need, hasn't changed? Can that faith save? No. How can we think about it. How can someone who claims to have truly understood the grace of God, that God in one sense didn't ignore our spiritual poverty, but served us and loved us and gave himself for us. How can that person now stand by and not then serve and love and give themselves for those so clearly in need? How can those who claim to know God and know who he is, his holiness, his love, his glory, his power, not then live under his rule and authority. 
that's not what this saving faith looks like. This is not how faith looks lived out. This is not where the gospel, this is not what the gospel does to us. And that brings us to the second point this evening, which is, well, the faith that does save. And that's from verses 20 to 26. You see, James then goes on in our final part of our passage to give two further examples. Examples that faith and works, they aren't separate things. And they actually correspond to the two previous examples that we had in our first section. So firstly, he goes straight to Abraham, who is the flip side of the demons. The demons believe God, but they disobey God. They refuse God's words and authority over them. But Abraham believes God and he obeys God's words. And he demonstrates that he lives out his faith by offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice, knowing that, that God would be even able to raise Isaac back to life if that's what it took. Abraham's faith led him to live it out. And then the second example that James goes to is Rahab. And she's the flip side of the, the armchair philanthropist. Rahab, in, instead of saying to someone in need, you know, um, you know, God bless you, you know, praying, hope it works out for you, okay. Well, no, her faith leads her to action. And so she gives refuge and shelter to the spies who are being hunted down. She believed, she had faith that Israel's God was the true God and her faith, her trust in that led her to action, even though she wasn't even a part of the people of God at that point. And so she lives, even she lives by offering to those in need, by loving those in need, sacrificially at the cost maybe of her own life, it might have been. See, this is where faith, this is what the gospel does in one sense, where faith that is real and living leads, a faith that isn't dead, a faith that's not useless. It shows us exactly what Jesus himself said in John chapter 15, verse 8, where Jesus said, this is to my father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. But I know some of you will probably be thinking that at this point, I've conveniently left something out that stands out straight away when you hear it read. And that being verse 24. In fact, verse 24 in our passage was the reason that Martin Luther ripped the book of James out of his Bible. So angry at what he wrote, at what he read. Uh, he did later on come to soften and he probably got a bit of sellotape and put it back in. But verse 24, it says this, he says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now, many people have read this verse and they go, you see, the Bible is contradicting itself. James says you're saved by faith and works, whereas Paul in letters like Romans and Galatians, where he says you're saved by faith and faith alone. Well, which one is it? Well, in answer to that question, actually, we may be overlooked to see what James and Paul are both trying to do. I was really helped by a German theologian called Jehoiakim Jeremias. What a name that is. Um, and he said, he points out that Paul and James are not using the same meaning when they're talking about faith and deeds. 
And so Joachim Jeremiah, he says that when James talks about faith and deeds, he's talking about a Jewish faith. That is pure monotheism, belief that there is a God who is there. And a Christian works, Christian works. That is good deeds that flow from salvation. Good deeds that we see written in Titus and Timothy. But he says, Paul, when he talks about faith and deeds, he talks in the flip side. So he talks about Christian faith. That is that we are made right with God only through trusting in Jesus and what he's done. And Paul, when he talks about works, he's talking about Jewish works. That is the attempt to try and be made right with God through what we do. And so here in James, we've got Jewish faith versus Christian works, not Jewish works and Christian faith, if that helps us there. It goes back to what we heard at the start. Paul tells us in his letters almost, you could say, what the gospel is, what the good news all about Jesus is. Whereas James is trying to tell us what the gospel does to someone, what it looks like for someone who believes the gospel to live it out. And James's main point in that passage really is, well, it looks like a life where faith and works, faith and action, faith and living it out go together. Christians who aren't those who just have one, but they have both. As Alec Mocher helpfully says, he says, saving faith results in a distinctive life. Distinctive in the way that we treat those around us, especially those in need. Knowing Jesus will undoubtedly change that in us, but distinctive in the way that we relate to God. Our knowledge of God doesn't leave us rejecting God still. Our belief about God leads us like Abraham to, to live humbly and obediently under his word. You know, it's a bit like what we heard this morning from the Sermon of the Mount with Phil, you know, about Jesus when he talks about what good is salt if it's lost its saltiness? What good is a lamp? If it's under a bowl, James says, what good is faith if it just stays in the head and is not lived out? But do you know what I love about these examples that James uses, these positive examples in our second half of our passage? Is that these are both people that if we read about their lives, Abraham in Genesis or Rahab in Joshua, we would see that whilst they are examples, certainly of, of what it looks like to, to, for faith to be lived out, you know, they were both characters who had their downs too. Abraham had plenty of times of unbelief as well as belief. Rahab was a prostitute for her job. And I love that these are the examples that James uses because it's almost like James adds this layer of reality behind what he's writing. It's easy to beat yourself up when you're reading through James. <laughs> it's immensely challenging to almost believe that James thinks perfection is required. But you see, for us this evening, that victory has already been won. And James is writing these things not because perfection is required, but because perfection has been achieved on our behalf. You know, we are broken people. And I know certainly as I've studied this passage this week that I have not loved others and I have not loved God at all the times that I know I should. Do you know, we might sense that in ourselves too. But, do you know, ask Abraham and Rahab that. Do you know, we're a loved and forgiven people too. 
And what's wonderful is we've been brought into new life through Jesus and we have his Holy Spirit living within us. And so that means that what was previously impossible for us is now possible. We can live a distinctive life that is salt and light and life to those around us. We can obey God's word. We can. We have the spirit living in us. We can live a life of loving our neighbour as ourselves, sacrificially so, just like those people in India that are doing right now. We can do that because we have the spirit living in, in us. We can live loving our neighbour as ourselves, loving God as a powerful testimony to the gospel. You know, I think it was C.H. Spurgeon who said, if you want to give a hungry man a tract, wrap it up in a sandwich. And, you know, I think that sums up a bit of what James is trying to say. Do you know, faith is electric. Faith is on fire when it's lived out. And we see that distinct. And if that is what the gospel does in our lives. So as we conclude, well, the question we really must look, ask ourselves as we looked at our passage this evening is, well, what does a living, a saving faith look like lived out? Well, I want to give maybe a summary for our passage that we've looked at. And that is a life that holds nothing back from God and a love that holds nothing back from human needs. A life that holds nothing back from God, from his son, the Lord Jesus, our king, and a love that holds nothing back from human need. And of course, when James says this evening that that's what the life of a Christian looks like, he says that ultimately because that's exactly who Christ is and what he himself has done for us. Jesus held nothing back from his father, did he? He lived his life in total devotion, obedience and purity and worship to his father. And he also held nothing back from human needs. You know, we read through his gospel accounts and we see that in his ministry, when he went from town to town, he healed the sick, he healed the blind, he had compassion for those who were weeping. He raised the dead, he fed the hungry. He didn't just give himself for those people, though. Not just that. But he held nothing back for you and for me this evening. He gave himself so totally, so wonderfully, so completely for you and for me. He was humiliated, tortured, mocked, executed on a cross. So that those in need, you and me, who, quite frankly, I, I know that I have not loved God, I've fallen well short of his standard. I've not loved others as he's called me to live either. And that sin, well, I am guilty. We are guilty and we are in need, aren't we? We're broken. We're in need of forgiveness. And yet Jesus, he held nothing back from our need. He held nothing back. He gave himself completely. And we have been rescued so wonderfully by his amazing work. Jesus' words matched his actions. Jesus' faith lived out nothing held back so this evening you know like the story we started with like solomon maybe we've got two people in church on a sunday both claim to believe well what's the evidence of that living faith james i think would say from our passage tonight what does it look like tomorrow are there areas in our lives that maybe we're holding back from God. He's not the ruler of our lives. There are areas we're holding back from human need. What are we like with the people around us tomorrow? Those within our church family, 
This is what the gospel does. This is what the gospel does. Love God, love one another. And we know that we are loved by Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you that you call us not to just be listeners of the words, but to be doers of it. And Father, we thank you that this is what your gospel does to us. This is what life in the spirit looks like. Loving those around us, those that you've called us to be around and loving you with our whole heart, mind, soul and strength. And Lord, we ask that by your spirit, you would help us as we head into tomorrow, as we head into this week, wherever we are, whoever we're with, to be the gospel to those around us, to live as Christ lived knowing that we are just fragile, broken reflections of his life. But Lord, we ask that by your spirit, we would be a reflection of him nonetheless, and that we would be looking to Jesus and in every failure, knowing that we are forgiven, knowing that there is grace, and knowing that in him we have a wonderful rescue. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.